Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. I've recently returned from a conference sitting at the feet of some amazing pastors and teachers. It was so encouraging listening to passages that I'm familiar with from the Bible, yet from a different perspective, different teachers, different thoughts. Imagine if we had lived at the time of Jesus and were able to actually sit at his feet and listen to his teaching. Well, the fact of the matter is we can. All we have to do is open the Bible. That's what we're going to do this week as we continue studying Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount. I'm Debbie Blank, encouraging you to sit back and absorb all that Jesus has to teach you about spiritual disciplines and proper conduct before the Lord. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. The Hollywood movie, Eat, Pray, Love, was about a divorcee who was trying to find the secrets to starting a new life. Though it has the word pray in the title, it's not a Christian movie. The woman's search leads her to inspiration in worldly solutions in worldly places. Italy to eat good food, India to learn to pray, and Bali to find a new love. But Matthew 6, 1-18 contains truth from Jesus Christ on secrets for living a wonderful new life. He describes three great habits that could be summed up with a similar title, Give, Pray, Fast. Jesus' fascinating teachings on those subjects, plus practicing true righteousness and avoiding what the hypocrites do, are the topics of today's third lesson from his famous Sermon on the Mount. And as we look at these three disciplines, there's really more to this than just the disciplines. Jesus is teaching us to have the right heart in how we follow these opportunities to draw closer to Jesus Christ. So let's begin with Matthew 6, 1, where we see a warning. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your father who is in heaven. Now, that warning reminds me of what he told them in Matthew five twenty, when he said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So he warned them right then that they had to have a change in how they lived. And now in chapter 6, he's warning them that their righteousness is to be lived out for God, not for men. If we live a righteousness before men, it's all about us. It's selfishness, and it makes us look good here on earth, but it does nothing for the kingdom of God. And this says we have no reward from our Father when we're being seen by men rather than doing things for God. And we have no real righteousness of our own. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. The righteousness that we have is from and through and under Jesus Christ. It's his righteousness that covers us. So if we think we're going to come out from under that to perform righteousness of our own, we're fooling ourselves. Righteousness is conformity with God in all that's right. God is righteous and right means doing the right thing. And so we are to be righteous as his followers. So we have this standard that Jesus gives us, and that is that we're to practice our righteousness, but we're not to do it before men. We're to do it before God. We're to be living, acting, looking like Jesus Christ to people, but especially in our heart towards the Lord. 
Ephesians 4.24 kind of says the same thing when we're told, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Our likeness of God is created through our righteousness and following holiness and truth of Jesus Christ. And we're reminded in Romans 1.17, the righteous shall live by faith. If you and I want to be righteous, we want to follow Jesus Christ. It's got to be from our hearts. It's got to be for God's glory, God's honor, not our own. And it comes through faith. So that that makes us reflecting the true Christian aspect of our character and not our own, which sometimes people can become saved, but they don't look any different than what they did before they became saved. Some people use the term carnal Christians. So what does it mean to be a carnal Christian and how can we avoid that? Well, if we're a carnal Christian, that means that we're living in the world rather than living for Jesus Christ. Our home is here on earth. That's where our focus is instead of considering that our eternity is our home. We're reminded of that in Romans 6, 11 through 13, which reads, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you'll obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. When we're carnal Christians, it's because we're walking in sin and the world, not walking with God. But it's not just a once in a while thing or when I feel like it or When I'm really feeling emotionally spiritual, it's all the time. Because God is righteous, we are his children, and we are to be righteous. And we're not to do it to be noticed by men. As I've already said, when we're doing it to be noticed by men, we get our rewards here on earth. We're doing it for our own self-gratification or self-satisfaction. In Matthew 23, 11 through 12, when Jesus is talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and he's calling them hypocrites, because they're walking by the letter of the law and they're doing everything outwardly. So he says to them, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. So he's telling them that they need to stop focusing on themselves, but focus on others and be their servants and not exalt themselves, but exalt others. That's what you and I are called to do as followers of Christ. So the main thing, and that's going to be repeated over and over again as we go through the rest of this scripture, is not to be doing things to be noticed by men. And what a temptation that is. We all want to be liked and respected, and status is pretty intoxicating to go after status in this world. And so those are the things that we get fooled by. It is. And when he goes through these three practices that every Jew is familiar with, and each one of us is too, because these three practices draw us close to Jesus, he mentioned in each one of them, don't do it so you'll be seen by men. Let's talk about the first practice now, which is almsgiving, beginning in Matthew 6, running through verses 2 to 4. That reads, so when you give to the poor, Do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Now, let's stop right there. Whenever somebody important was coming down the street, they would blow a trumpet to get the people's attention so they would honor the king or the important person. And Jesus is saying here, don't sound a trumpet when you're giving away your money. Don't let people know. He goes on to say, 
Truly I say to you, you have your reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So let's walk through that a little bit. When you give, he says, that tells us that this is expected. This isn't an optional thing for you and I as a believer. We are taught in Scripture to give to other people. Deuteronomy 15, 10 and 11 tells us in the Old Testament, you shall generously give to him and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. Because for this thing, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. That's pretty clear that we are to be helping those less fortunate. Some of us have an attitude, well, they can go to the Oakland Door Mission and get help. They don't need my money. Or they put themselves in their situation and they need to get themselves out of it. Well, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says we're to help the poor. Now, we need to be discriminatory about this. And that means that as we're driving down the street and we see people in the street corner collecting money, that's not a good place to give your money because those people do that as a job. They get in their cars and they drive to their houses, but they make their money doing that. They're panhandling. They're not necessarily poor. So we have to be discerning on where we give our money. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7, I love this chapter, and chapter 8 also in 2 Corinthians, because it talks so much about giving. But here it says, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's pretty clear. When we give consistently as God calls us to, and that's a key there, it's not just our emotional giving, it's as God leads us, then we're going to reap a benefit. But if we're cheap, if we don't do what God tells us to do, there's not going to be that benefit. It goes on to read in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must do just as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I don't know if you've ever had that opportunity, but it is so much fun to hear from the Lord where he wants us to help someone else, but to do it in secret and just watch the joy that permeates in the life of the person that you gave something to. That's why you can become a cheerful giver. It's so exciting to do that. I was reading my granddaughter a little story the other day, and it was all about these kids who decided to have a secret club that did good things for people. And she just loved hearing about how the kids would run and leave something nice for somebody and run away and then watch from the bushes the lady come to the door and pick up the flowers that they had left for her. There was joy in that story. And my little granddaughter, I hope there were seeds planted for her to want to do something like that. And we need to be teaching our children that because it is a joy to give the money that God has given us to other people as the Lord leads us to do. It says here we're to do it in secret. In Matthew 6, 4, it reads, so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, you can't always do that. If you're giving a car to somebody, you've got to take them and change the title. And sometimes if you're giving a, a reasonably sized amount of cash or a check, you can't really do that in secret. That's okay if you do it one-on-one. -on -one. But the idea is we're not to go and tell everybody else what we've done. We're doing it because God called us to do it. And the idea is that the people will give glory to God. 
So it's an act of worship when we give to other people, when we listen to God and do it in obedience, really to God and to glorify him more than just meeting the needs of someone else. So the benefit of all of this, it says God will reward you. Now, this is very important because our motivation for following these disciplines should never be to receive a reward, but it is a benefit that God gives us when we listen to him, when we obey him, when we do what he calls us to do, and we honor God, give him the glory. When that motivation is right, we receive a reward. I believe if our motivation is wrong, God will still honor our obedience but the reward isn't going to be quite the same. And the generosity comes from appreciating what God has done for us. So we can ask for that heart of love that overflows to others so that that does honor him. Now let's look at the second discipline that God calls his people to follow. In Matthew 6, 5 through 8, he says, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. And what's their reward? Well, their reward is being seen by men. That's the people's heart when they do that in public like that. And that's their reward, is men are going to see them and probably think positively about them. But that's not the kind of reward we should seek, because that's temporal. And again, it's focused on us. He goes on to say in Matthew 6, 6, But you, when you pray, go into your inner room. Close your door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You see that again in secret. When we give, we are told to do it in secret. When we pray, we're to do it in secret. In verse 7, he says, And when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Here, people with the wrong motives are being compared with Gentiles who use lots of words. You use lots of words because you want to be known by men or you want people to say, wow, they really know how to pray or some kind of an attitude that honors the individual instead of honoring God. Prayer should always be about glorifying God and honoring him. Now, yes, we do it in public. The pastor prays in church. When we're in a Bible study, we pray for one another. So it's not that you have to do every prayer in secret. The idea here is that our prayers are to be reverent before the Lord, to give glory to him, but to pray for people in a way that isn't honoring us, but is seeking the Lord, his glory, his praise, and his honor for these other people. So we're to do it in secret because what if we're having a drought and I go out in public and I pray this magnificent prayer that God would allow rain and the next day it rains? Well, people are going to say, oh, look at Debbie. She really knows how to pray and God answers her prayers. No, 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 no. That's not what we want. That doesn't mean we can't pray it in public. But the idea is the heart. Where is our heart? Is it to be seen by men or is it to glorify God? And when you speak of heart, there's that heart relationship between you and the Lord. There's an intimacy where Jesus went to be alone with God for that relationship, and we can have that relationship too. But it's good to have that one-on-one -on -one intimate relationship with the Lord in prayer. 
I'm glad you mentioned about Jesus. Matthew 14, 23 says, after Jesus had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. There's several examples of Jesus praying. And I think he's God. He's one with the Father. Why does he need to go and pray? But he did as an example to us, but also so he could commune with God. Our greatest opportunity here on earth is being able to commune with God to hear his heart through his spirit, to know what he wants us to do, to listen, to obey. We hear him through his word. We also hear him through prayer, that very important thing. I was talking to a gal not long ago who was in a spiritual drought. For about two years, this woman felt nothing about God. She didn't feel the love. She didn't feel the emotions. She didn't feel anything, which is really amazing because she's a godly Christian woman. But she continued to follow God. She continued to read his word. She continued to pray because her strength in time of doubt, in time of uncertainty, was knowing who God was and being obedient to his word and drawing close to him, even though she didn't feel like it. So we don't pray because we feel like it. We pray to commune with God, to hear from him, to be obedient to him, to worship him, to give glory to him, to pray for what our needs are. At one point, the disciples actually come to Jesus and they ask him, how do we pray? And he gives them instructions on how to pray. He gives them the Our Father as we know this. One thing we probably don't realize about the Our Father is it's an index sentence prayer. Each one of these principles is designed to lead us into much deeper fellowship and relationship with God. So let me give you an example. Jesus said, Pray then in this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What are we doing right there? We're giving praise and worship to God. That doesn't mean we stop there. It means that's just this beginning. That's an index sentence to remind us that God is our focus so that we will continue to worship him and honor him and praise him before we move on to anything else in our prayer life. It's so important because we have a tendency to go to God and say, God, I need this and God, I need that. Well, if we go to God and praise and worship him consistently, not just with one sentence, we're looking towards God. We're looking towards his will, his directive. We're looking towards what is best in his eyes. We want what he wants. He continues on by saying, thy kingdom come. The future is the focus there is on God's eternal kingdom that we are going to have when we accept Jesus Christ. We're to focus on the heavenly kingdom, not on earth as our kingdom. We're only here for a short time, 70 years, 80, if we're fortunate, according to Psalm 90. So our focus should be on heaven. And again, as a sentence prayer, it's thinking about what God's kingdom was going to be like in our time there and being able to walk with Jesus and walk with God the Father. You'll notice, by the way, that this focus is on God the Father in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name, but Jesus told him to focus on God the Father. Then he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is it your heart to do God's will? Or do you want God to rubber stamp your will? That's the way it tends to be with a lot of us. Here we want to focus on what God's will is. We want God's will, just as he is perfect in heaven and everyone in heaven follows him, we should want that here on earth, and especially in our own lives. 
So again, as a sentence prayer, this is just a conduit to get us into God's presence, thinking in that direction about his will being done. Once we've focused on God in all those aspects of God, then we ask for ourselves, give us this day our daily bread. That's the supplication. But by now, we realize that we're dependent on God for everything. And so our heart, when we ask for what we want or need, is to do it according to God's will, not because of our desires. He then goes on to say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Well, God tells us how important forgiveness is here, but later on in verses 14 and 15 of Matthew 6, he says, if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, your father will not forgive your transgressions. That's pretty intense. Are you in a right relationship with everybody here on earth as best as you can be? If not, I would suggest you pray about it and see how you can forgive and how you can reconcile with them. This is important enough to God for us to be reconciled and to forgive others that he uses three verses here in the Our Father to talk about it. He goes on to say, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Does God lead us into temptation? No, we lead ourselves into temptation, but we need God's help so that we're not led in that direction. Our humanness, our sinful nature, wants us to do what we want to do. So we're asking God to keep us safe from the evil one, to keep us safe from getting into a position that we will sin, that we know is wrong. We need his help and his deliverance. And then finally, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, that reminds us of the sovereignty of God. You notice that we start with praise and worship and we end with recognizing the character of God, his sovereignty. He reigns over awe. Why would we not want to entrust our lives to him, entrust all of our needs and our wants and our relationships to him? Why would we not want to know him more so that we can trust him with all of these things? That's what this Our Father is. The next time you pray this prayer, think of this in the idea of index sentences, where these are just phrases that are conduits to lead you into a deeper relationship with God in each one of these areas. And the last discipline that's mentioned is fasting. And that's something that we don't maybe know as much about as we should. That's right. We've talked about it here on the show before. So today we're just going to hit some high points about fasting. In Matthew 6, 16 to 18, Jesus told his disciples, whenever you fast, again, whenever you fast, that's going along the assumption that they are fasting. Do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance that they'll be noticed by men when they're fasting. Three disciplines, three times we're told, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't let other people see what you're doing. Because truly I say to you, Jesus said, they have their reward in full. They're honored by men, not by God. In Matthew six seventeen, he continues, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your heavenly Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Each one of these disciplines tells us not to do this publicly, to do this privately before the Lord. If we do it publicly, our reward is right now here on earth. 
if we do it privately with the Lord, we have a reward in heaven. Now, that's important because in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we're told that you and I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ when we get to heaven. Now, we're not standing before the judgment seat to be condemned for the sins that we've committed because we're already in heaven and Jesus has already covered our sins and paid the price for our sins. So when we get to heaven, we are going to receive rewards. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and we will be recompensed or receive rewards is what that means. For the deeds that we have done in the body, whether they be good or bad. Now that doesn't mean bad things. It means whether they be good, honoring to God and worthy of rewards, or bad meaning worthless, that they're not worthy of rewards. You and I will receive rewards when we get to heaven based on what we've done here on earth for the kingdom of God in obedience to Jesus Christ and what he would have us do for the kingdom. Now, you can do a whole bunch of good things on this earth, but if you're not doing them according to Jesus' goal, his will, his plan for you, they're going to be burned up. They're going to be worthless or bad, as he called them. If, however, we listen to Jesus and do what he calls us to do, Those rewards that honored him are what we will be honored with once we get into heaven. Each one of these disciplines says we're going to receive those rewards and we have to do it with the right heart and the right motives. Otherwise, it's going to be worthless. Well, let's go back to fasting now. In fasting, he says that we're to do this. It's expected of us. So why do we fast? Well, there's lots of reasons in scripture why people fasted. Some people fasted for fear. In 2 Chronicles 20, verse 3, one of my favorite passages about how faithful God is, King Jehoshaphat was really concerned because he had three major armies coming up to fight Israel. So we are told that he was afraid, and he turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So when we're afraid of something, when we're worried about something, but when things are on our hearts that are really difficult, That's when we fast and pray, because both of those together draw us closer to God. How does going without food benefit God? Well, it really benefits us, because it takes away a worldly pleasure and a worldly need, so that during that time, we can focus our attention on God, not on what we want, but what he's calling us to do. And we can pour out our needs to him. And we saw that too for Ezra. In Ezra 8, 21 to 23, he prayed and said he proclaimed a fast at the river Hava that he and all the people, 50,000 of them that were returning to Israel, that they would humble themselves before our God to seek him for a safe journey. They were seeking God for safety, for protection. But the whole purpose of fasting was humbling themselves before God. People often fast when they're sick or when they're praying for someone who is sick too, don't they? Yes, they do, but we also have to watch our motivations. When my mother was dying, I fasted and prayed for her. She died. Things didn't work out the way I had fasted and prayed for, and I was mad at God because I thought, okay, I did this, God, just like you tell me to do, and it didn't work. Well, fasting and praying isn't manipulating God. It's an act of our hearts designed to humble ourselves before God, to seek his will, not our own. As we read these three things, let's remember, God wants us to fast, to pray, and to give alms. 
and he wants us to do it with the right heart. Are you following God's directive and drawing closer to him by following these three disciplines? Are you doing it with the right motivation? Are you doing it in secret so that you could give God the glory and so that your heart can be changed? Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.